Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Every time I see your face, it reminds me of the place. Tonight, on a very special 100th episode of The Big Interview, the one and only Ringo Starr. Good afternoon, Dan. Good morning, sir. Oh, we hug. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Yeah. Come in. Have you. a seat. Few musicians have reached the level of fame and success as Seringo Starr. And no band transformed music and pop culture more than the Beatles. Four young musicians from Liverpool, England, stepped off a plane at JFK Airport and changed pop culture and music forever. The Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show was a touchstone in American history that created a hysteria and awakened the spirit of a generation. John, Paul, George, and Ringo's disarming charisma and lovable wit alone would have made them stars. Help, I need somebody, help, not just anybody. But then, of course, there was always the music. I say hi, you say love. The Beatles were unlike anything the world had ever seen, and nobody has sold more records or made more of an impact since. Life is very short. While John Lennon and Paul McCartney harmonized and George Harrison riffed on his guitar, Ringo Starr sat behind him, keeping the beat to their irresistible songs. And there he is, all out of key and nervous, singing act naturally, Ringo! And occasionally taking center stage. The Beatles brought artistry to pop culture. And whatever the Beatles did, everyone else followed suit. Don't let me down. Remarkably, the Fab Four called it quits after only eight years. But those eight prolific and influential years changed the landscape of rock and roll forever. Don't let me down. Following the Beatles' breakup, Ringo Starr got out from behind his drum kit and built a career as a frontman. Going solo allowed Ringo the freedom to distinguish himself through his music, and he did. 
between 1971 and 1975, Ringo had seven consecutive top ten singles. It's been a hard With his breakout role in the Beatles' first film, A Hard Day's Night, fans and critics noted that Ringo's outsized charm translated well to the silver screen. Any more for the merry-go-round? He has acted in over a dozen films since. And it was on the set of one of those movies that Ringo met his wife, former Bond girl, Barbara Bach. What's my name? Although the Beatles only spent four years touring the world together, Ringo has made a habit of it in the years since. In 1989, he gathered some of his other hit-making friends and formed the first version of his all-star band. For nearly 30 years, Ringo and his all-star band have been performing a set list full of crowd-pleasing songs to audiences around the world. I caught up with the newly knighted Sir Ringo star at the Bogota Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, where he and his all-star band were kicking off their latest world tour. Well, I'm really honored you do this. Thank you very uh, much. You know, what else would I be doing? Well, that's my question to you. Well, well I'm going to Paris after this, so <laughs> that's what I'm doing. Paris after this? Yeah. Not Atlantic City, Paris, touring. Not, that's what it's Not a about. bad line of work. Yeah, I love it. I love playing. We all get a bit bored with the traveling and new hotels. Well, I want to talk about it. We're in a beautiful hotel and casino that we got here in um, Atlantic City. You well, played with your all-star band uh, night before last. Last night, you're on a world tour, headed from here to Paris. But it's Sunday morning and going into Sunday afternoon. What's Sunday morning and early Sunday afternoon like for Seringo? At home, it's really regular because we get up around about 7.30 and we deal with our dogs and then we take our dogs out. Then we come back and we have breakfast and then we let the day unfold. Dogs, more than one. Yeah, one of them as big as you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty big dog. Yeah. <laughs> well, but on tour, you, you know, you, you're in the wind. You know, we have to pack to this morning, get ready to go, you know, do this, then head for Philadelphia, get on a plane. You just get used to it. You know, you get a mind, I get a mindset, okay, I'm on tour now. So I'm here, they put me on the stage, I do that stuff, they get me off, they get me to the hotel, you know, so it's what we do. You say you're in the wind. Yeah. You've been in the wind for a long time, my friend. Better than having wind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have. You know, from 1960, when I left the factory, this is what I've done. You know, I've played, I've toured, made a few good records. Made a few good records. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I know many people, particularly people who are at the top or who have been at the top, who lose their moorings. They do. They, they, they lose. The authenticity is the only word yeah. I'm up to. You haven't done that. Uh, well, thanks. I hope not. Um, 
I think, I think it's all part of where we came from as well. And, but, you know, I always give credit that there was, you know, we're talking about the Beatles now, four of us. I mean, I was in Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, <laughs> but there were four of us, and we all from the same city, and we would look at each other, you know, if one of us would be freaking out or being a big shot, three other people would go, excuse me, you know? And that kept us, and you know, it's interesting, because at the time we met Elvis, I really thought, how sad he's on his own. And he had all those people around, but he was on his own. I had three great mates. I'm well enough of it here. And but you mentioned earlier you had a God-given gift. Yeah, time. How much of it is a God-given gift, and how much of it is all those hours you spent practicing? I didn't. I hate practicing. I hate sitting there. I tried it when I first got the kit upstairs in the back room, you know, all those movies that were made. And it was the most boring thing ever. I did all my learning with other musicians, other bands. I was lucky because uh, there were a lot of us around and we weren't all great players. We were all learning, so I learned everything with everyone else at that time. This is in Liverpool. When in Liverpool, yeah. But I was lucky in the factory, the guy who lived next door to me in the street worked in the factory, and he was Eddie Miles, a great guitarist. Uh, he's just one of those guys, picked it off, can play anything, you know. And my best friend, Roy, had a, made a T-chest bass, and I had a snare drum and brushes, and we used to play to the men at lunchtime in the basement. And that's how I started. And now I'm talking to you. When we come back, Ringo Starr relives his humble Liverpool beginnings in the big interview with Dan Rather. You've landed in the Wayback Machine with Ringo Starr. Let's get back to his big interview with Dan Rather. Before he became Ringo Starr, he was Richard Starkey. Starkey was born in Liverpool, England, in the early years of the Second World War. He was barely a month old when the Germans began a blitz on the city and its ports. By war's end, only London had suffered more bombings and casualties. Starkey grew up in a poor, war-ravaged neighborhood known as the Dingle. His father abandoned the family when Starkey was just three years old, so his mother raised him largely by herself. Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. All four of the Beatles grew up in Liverpool. The city inspired some of the Beatles' greatest hits. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to and remains one of the most curious things about them. How did this English port city produce the greatest rock and roll band in history? Strawberry fields forever. I want to talk about coming up in Liverpool. Yeah. You've never talked about it very much, and I don't want to pressure you to talk about it. But I'm interested partly because I had a somewhat similar experience at just about the same age. You had almost everything in the world wrong with you. I wrote oh, down yeah. <laughs> peritonitis, pleurisy, yeah. tuberculosis, 
problems with your appendix. I mean, you were a mess during adolescence and puberty. Yeah, but I think that's part of what I am today. You know, because that's all those experiences that you go through make you what you are. And, you know, at seven, I had my birthday in hospital. I had uh, peritonitis, really bad. And then I had my 14th birthday in hospital with tuberculosis. And when I was 13 in this hospital, in those days, you took streptomycin and fresh air. They moved us to a greenhouse away from where I lived in Liverpool. And streptomycin was the pill and put you in bed for months. So I'm in bed like 10 months. And to keep us entertained, people would come in, teachers, and uh, one woman used to come in, not so often, but she came in, and she had percussive instruments. You know, she had maracas and tambourines and a little drum that you hit, and she'd point to the red dot on the chart, and you'd hit the drum or the yellow dot, you know. And I hit that drum, and it was amazing. I only would play the drum in this mad band that she'd bring in. And I only ever wanted to be a drummer from when I was 13. I didn't want to be a guitarist or a piano player. Well, later on I wanted to be a piano player, but um, it just was one of those moments in my life that I wanted to be a drummer. Well, forgive me for the personal reference, but I had rheumatic fever when I was a child. Yeah, well. 11, 13, bedridden for most of the time. Yeah. And while I aspired to being a reporter before then, in those moments, and they were lonely moments by yeah, myself yeah. in bed, yeah, fearful, in all yeah. of that, that's when I said to myself, I've got to be a journalist. I've got to be a yeah. reporter. And this is what happened with you with the drums. Yeah. Now, question, and you can only give me your opinion. Would it have happened if you had not been bedridden for a long time and in the hospital? We don't know. We don't know. I was, and I did. You know, that's all I know. Yeah, I can't live in that world, you know, about if only I'd have done this, if only I'd have done that. I mean, that's the thing, that the things you don't do are the ones that haunt you for the rest of your life, you know. At 19, I was trying to emigrate to uh, Houston, Texas, because my favorite blues player, Lightning Hopkins, lived around there. And we went to the embassy, and we got all these forms, me and my friend, and, uh, and then we got a form of factory jobs, uh, you know, to try and get if they gave us permission. And anyway, we were teenagers, we signed all these forms, we filled them in, and we took them back, and they said, and here's the next lot of forms. And we were teenagers, fuck, you know, it wrapped the buggers up and carried on. <laughs> so much for Houston and Lightning Hopkins. Well, I still love Lightning Hopkins. But how'd you get from Lightning Hopkins to Ernest Tubb? I love music, and you know I got to big bands through my stepdad Harry, and Sarah Vaughan. That was one of the great lines. He said, "You know, I'd play what I was listening to," and he never liked said, "Oh, that stuff." He'd always say, "Have you heard this?" And he'd play Sarah Vaughan. Have you heard this? Billy Exxon, Billy Daniels, Glenn Miller. He had his record collection, and uh, you know so. I've always appreciated that. And the early rock and roll, like Little Richard, uh, you know, they did it in like one take. It was mono. They rocked, you know. So I don't know. It, all of that impressed me. And uh, 
They used to, you know, the maddest story I have is that in Liverpool, at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, my friend Roy and I never went anywhere because they had uh, Alan Freed's uh, rock and roll radio show. But it came from Luxembourg, because the BBC didn't play rock and roll. So they must have had the biggest antenna known to man, I don't know. But it came through the radio, and it was so great. And that's where we started to hear what was happening in America. And that's why we were excited when we came to America with the Beatles, because all our music had come from there. When we return here on The Big Interview, the call that changed the course of rock and roll. That's up next. In the early 1960s, Richard Starkey was known for wearing rings, lots of them. So he adopted the stage name Ringo Starr when he became the drummer for Liverpool's then biggest band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. Meanwhile, another band from Liverpool was gaining momentum. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and their then drummer, Pete Bess, began playing the same venues as the Hurricanes, and sometimes the two bands shared the top billing. Ringo became friends with and a fan of the Beatles. Then a fateful call in 1962 from the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, set Ringo on the path to greatness. You mentioned uh, taking risk. Yeah. If we take risk in life, it's no good looking back and saying, might have, could have, should have taken yeah, yeah. this road or that road. Gone. But you took a big risk. You were playing with the Hurricanes. I was. And you got a chance to go with this Beatles group. Yeah, I know. But the Hurricanes were bigger at the moment. They were. Uh, but I loved, from Germany where we met, really, we were playing at Rory and the Hurricanes and the Beatles were playing the same. Different clubs than the guy Koshmi who owned both of them, put us on the same club. And I loved uh, John, Paul and George. I just loved that front line. And, you know, we would do at the weekend 12 hours between us. And I'd be there for the last gig, you know, uh, just sitting there watching the front line requesting something. So, uh, yeah, so then they asked, and I had no hesitation, really, but people did say, are you going to leave Rory? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going to leave. You know, you just make a step up. I'm interested to know why that was. You, you liked the group. I did. I you liked the, the music. Yeah, they were great players. They were the, where, uh, you know, Rory was a showman and we were players and we had a guitarist called Johnny Guitar who was great, but that was about it really. Uh, but we, you know, we were big in Liverpool and uh, I just loved them. So, uh, you know, the thing Brian called, it was a Wednesday. He said, would well, you join the band? I said, sure. I said, when? He said, oh, tonight. I said, no, I have to. I can come Saturday because they've got to get another drummer. Because, <laughs> you know, we're all playing the same songs. Well, let's go back for, for a minute. Even before the Hurricanes, you heard Lightning Hopkins, you heard Ernest, Ernest Tubb, you heard Hank Williams. Hank Williams, all of those. 
Did you hear other drummers? For example, Gene Krupa was a big drummer. I went to see, uh, I think it was the Glenn Miller story. Glenn, uh, Gene Krupa was actually in it. Yeah. But people always ask me, oh, what about those drummers and those records? I never listened to the drummer. I listened to the whole thing. You know, there was an Al Green track called uh, I'm a Ram, and the guy hit the hi-hat, boom, 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 psst. It's like magic to me. And I remember sitting, you know, I remember those moments. I was, we were sitting with Klaus Borman in this apartment we have in London. And uh, so that did. But Al Jackson, yes, I know the names. And they played on great records. But it wasn't like I was listening for the drums. Well, looking back over your career, you've had it all. You've had a great solo career, still touring with your own band, in which you put the band forward. Uh, I was there last night when yeah. you performed, and frankly, a little surprising, but very impressive. You don't put yourself forward. You put the band forward, the whole band. I love to be in a band. I'm a band guy. You're a band guy, now, and a drummer. Now, help me remember, I'm not a musician, but do you think of yourself as a sideman, or is the drummer in a special category? You have the star, the centerpiece. Well, because of the Beatles and that, you know, I'm, I am the guy. It's Ringo and the All-Stars. Right. But I play with all these other guys. They play for me. And uh, it sort of worked out since 1980. Now it'll be 30 years I've been doing this part of my life um, next year uh, when I put the first Ringo and the All-Stars band together, which came about how crazy some guy, promoter, Pepsi had got to him and said, you know, we'd like Ringo to do a tour, that we'll support him, who got to my lawyer, who uh, called me out of the blue. And I thought, yeah, okay. And I phoned, you know, it was quite a big band because I just opened in those days the phone book. <laughs> and called all these, Dr. John, Joe Walsh, Billy Preston, Clarence. I thought that'd be good. I'd be Clarence to bump up against. And Nils and Levon. I was so insecure, though I'd said yes. I had, there were three drummers. I was in the middle. Jim Keltler, my hero from L.A. drummer, was on this side, and Levon Helm was on this side. And we were just all boogie in a way. It's very good. But you said you were insecure. But I was. I never put a band together. Together, I've always been in bands, joined bands. The only time I put a band together was like 19, to make life easy, 58. And uh, I was trying to put this band together. And I heard about this trumpet player. And uh, I said, oh, man, come down. We'll have a rehearsal. And the trumpet player did play trumpet, but the only thing he could play was when the saints go marching in. <laughs> so uh, that band fell apart really quick. <laughs> so, you know, it's good. Life is good. Up next, Ringo talks love, life, and addiction with Dan Rather on The Big Interview. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get real with Ringo about what rock star life really is like. The big interview with Dan Rather continues. And I said, no, 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 I don't smoke it no more. I'm tired of waking. 
The life is good. Mm -hmm. But life hasn't always been good, even for Siringo. No, Siringo was, uh, had his downside. He got completely crazed with uh, alcohol and cocaine and drugs. And my career went into the dumper, and because my use went up, and that's all I did. I ended up in a spot where I didn't know how you didn't do that. I didn't know you didn't do alcohol and drugs. So we're talking about when you hit rock bottom it was during the 80s. Uh, yeah. Or was it before then? No, no. I was, my, my career sort of went down from, it started really going down fast around about 74, 75. And uh, then I was on the, on the road <laughs> to hell, really. What brought you around? I mean, some people never get out of it. Uh, yeah, you know, that day arrived where I came out of a blackout and I'd done a lot of damage. And uh, I, I thought, I said to Barbara, you've got to get me in one of those places. She called somebody, you called somebody, and, and we ended up in Sierra Tucson. And, uh, and I drank all the way. I didn't know you didn't drink. I drank all the way to the rehab. And I got to know Mike in Chicago Airport. He was the, the guy behind the bar. And, and that was it. I haven't had a drink since. Now, this is your second marriage, but you're working on, what, 37 years in this marriage? Well, we've been together 38 years, and we've been married for 37 years. Well, you know, there are a lot of men in this audience who'd like to know what it's like to be married to a Bond girl for 37 years. Great. <laughs> but she's more than a Bond girl, and I'm more than a Beatle, so. Uh, it was one of those madnesses, you know, in my life. We were in 1980 in January going to uh, Mexico to do this movie, and I was checking in, and she was checking in over there with her boyfriend, was seeing her off. And I just fell in love with the lady. And uh, my story is then she tortured me for a couple of months. And then we haven't been apart since. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of your children, Zach, yeah. uh, has followed in your footsteps. Plays yeah. with the Who, a great drummer in his own yeah, right. He's an incredible drummer, yeah. He, uh, I gave him one lesson. And then, like two weeks later, I thought, I'll give you second lesson and he said oh I can do that dad I said well you're on your own and uh, you know that's what he's done he's found his own style he's done it his own way uh, yeah is really. he left-handed he's not left-handed no well so he had a little better start well he, <laughs> yeah that's what it was <laughs> yeah but my other son plays drums also it's like mad you know but he uh, is more of a family man, and so he didn't want to, like, go out there and do that stuff. Well, question, did you try to encourage your children into music? No. But Zach, you know, is also good on guitar. He's, like, musical. Um, I played the music. He was, like, 10 when I bought him his first kit because he was taking an interest. And uh, he's basically done it on his own. You mentioned that your wife, Barbara, you said, I think the phrase was, she's much more than a Bond girl. Yeah, yeah. And I'm much more than Ringo Beatle. Beatle. Yeah. 
then what are you? You said you're much more. Well, Fill out the picture for uh, me. That was eight years. You know, people say, oh, would you, you know, write a book, write your autobiography? And I say, well, okay, well, I'll be like uh, three books before I get to the Beatles, <laughs> you know, because I've had a full life. But they only really want those eight years. And people, you know, are there. I'm in that, that slot for them, really. I hope you'll notice I didn't start this interview talking about the Beatles. No, and I thank you for that. I wanted to talk about you, and I still yeah. want to talk about you. Well, that experience was great. As a musician, as a, an only child who suddenly had three brothers, four guys who really cared for each other, and we also made some great tracks. Well, there were all those stories at the time. There are stories about almost everything. Yeah, that's the About thing. how you didn't get along. You had no, no, we didn't get along. We were four guys. We had rows. We, uh, it never got in the way of the music, no matter how bad the row was. Uh, once the counting, we all gave our best. And that was a little later, too, which I think is a natural thing. You know, suddenly we've got lives and I've got children and, you know, the, the effort that we put in, because we worked really hard, uh, was starting to pale a little, you know. And, you know, we always thank Paul to this day. Because of Paul, who was the workaholic of our band, we made a lot more records than John and I would have made, say, you know. Uh, we'd like to sit around a little more, and then Paul would call, all right, lads, and we'd go in. In the eight years they were together, the Beatles experimented with new sounds in the studio and were influenced by their travels around the world. Their music evolved from the familiar rhythms of early rock and roll into a psychedelic sound that suited the counterculture of the 60s. That roving curiosity kept the Beatles' music vibrant, but they couldn't have refined their sound without their producer, Sir George Martin. Sometimes referred to as the fifth Beatle, Martin helped the Fab Four craft songs that everyone could relate to. It was that universal appeal that helped them conquer America though they didn't realize they were entering such a divided country until they were confronted by the ugly reality of segregation in Jacksonville, Florida. Well, let's talk about George Morton. It's pretty hard to talk about your career. Oh, George is very important. He was so great. Um, but, you know, we had to stand up to George also after a while because, you know, he'd only come in to press the red button so you could record, you'd do all the other stuff. Himself, but he uh, then was finding other songs that would be hits for us to do. And we stood there, and I remember it so vividly. We stood there, no, George, we want to do what they write, and they would say, we want to do what we write. And anyway, he was a big enough man to go along with it. But what did he have to do, if anything, with the sound, the distinctive well, sound? Well, he was in charge. I mean, the sound we made 
and we could play and we could experiment. But at the beginning, we just like this four-piece band, and he would put it down in mono, mind you. So you know, and then we got to four track, and then we got to eight track, and that's as far as we went. Um, but he was in control of all of that, and then we later on joined in that part too, you know. But you know, if there was anything uh, violin, any musician, uh, like orchestration or anything, none of us can read or write music. We could hum it to George, and he'd write it down, and they'd bring in the violins, and you know, Paul was a genius. How incredible to say, at least in the beginning. Yeah. That of the Beatles, of the four, none could really write music. No, no one could read or write music, no. And we're buskers. And we listen to each other playing, you know, I, with the cans on. You just, I knew, okay, we're going up a bit here and we're, the mood's coming down, you know, I mean, as you're playing, it was, uh, it was like psychic, you know, it was really strange. We were very, very close. Well, very, very close. I reminded <laughs> you must have been to make decisions, such as the decision in Jacksonville, which had been written about and right I know, for yeah. so long. Well, we, we don't understand that, you see. We're English and we just play. We play to the people. We didn't understand it. We said, well, we're not going. And, uh, and we've met, because of the documentary, the Ron Howard one, several people who were there and uh, this one lady was so rich and that was so strange I was like sitting you know hanging out at this uh, venue and we were like with all these white people you know and uh, you know it wasn't like we didn't think we were like breaking any like real big taboos we just didn't play we played to people and I still and I know Paul does we play to people to you, it was a, it was a given. We didn't, we didn't understand that that, se that segregation. So that was going to be my question: what, whether you discussed it among yourselves? This is a big move. This could hurt us. This could hurt our record sales. We didn't think. Well, as you know, looking back on it, it was a breakthrough. Yeah. Well, yeah. But we were just lads, and we just said, "No, we're not going to do it." No, you have a plane to catch. But a couple of things that I promised myself I'd ask you. First of all, when you were growing up, was yours a very religious family? Was it church going in any way? No. What kind of religious background no. did you have? No, we had none of that. Um, we didn't go to church every Sunday, and uh, just wasn't part of our family. Um, so the only time I went to church a little regular was when I was in the choir. <laughs> it wasn't for long, and then I stole the vicar's rifle, and they threw me out the choir. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. No, I have to give it back. <laughs> well, his life has well, gone... Well, no, we were not big churchgoers. Uh, nothing but as life has gone along, have you developed some religious belief? Well, you know, people say... it's. I like spirituality more than religion. And uh, so when people ask, you know, I like to say I'm a Christian Hindu with Buddhist tendencies. Well, that pretty much covers the waterfront. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I take the goodness from it all, really. Hey, stay with us, and you might learn a thing or two about the fifth Beatle when the big interview with Dan Rather continues.
We're back as Dan Rather wraps up his big interview with Ringo Starr. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. The Borgata Hotel and Casino was bustling as Ringo and his all-star band kicked off their new world tour. Fans were greeted with a Beatles tribute throughout the lobby. Nearby, some of Ringo's artwork was on display. And when Sir Ringo made an appearance to sign some of his pieces, the crowd roared. Some of your art was on display here. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, that was, you know, I, I did like, I like to paint. And, uh, you know, I lived in uh, Monte Carlo a long time. A lot of artists came to the south of France because of the light. Anyway, I thought, well, look at this light. So I bought myself some canvases and started painting. But the most of the art that sold uh, for the Lotus Foundation, uh, I was in a hotel again on tour, and I just was like on the computer poodling about. And uh, they had some art programs and apps. Computer art? Yeah, most of what you see is computer art. Um, and I just started doing heads. I used to call them my men. And I could do a lot of heads for, oh, that one. That one has emotion. I would, because I'm the artist, I'll tell you which has emotion. And that's how it started. And then some guy, Neil Glazer, heard I was doing this art. And, uh, and he came to have a visit. And he said, uh, you know, we could put this out. We could do something with this. And he has several other well-known faces who like to paint. And uh, said, OK. And it's all for the Lotus Foundation. And, and that so foundation is dedicated to what? Well, it's dedicated to several things. But it's a charity Barbara and I created. And we funded from the art, the drumstick deal, this deal, whatever. It's like we, we do support some of the big charities. Uh, Water Aid is my favorite. And, uh, but we also help people start the charity. When we, we were doing it in England, and you know, if we could pay the rent for a year so they got off, we would do that. And you know, we bought a, a bench for a little park in England so people could sit on the bench. You know, and things like that. Uh, so it, it covers uh, addictive personalities, it covers a cancer situation, it, it cover, covers many things. It's not like we only do this. Well, let's talk about peace and love. Yeah. I noticed, uh, and how could you not notice, that last night near the very end of a concert, and you and the band gave everything the yeah. concert, as you played it, at least a little bit of Give Peace a Chance. Hey, John's song, yeah. We end with Give Peace a Chance. I'm the peace and loving all through the show. And, you know, there's no better song that we could just rock on the chorus and, and uh, say all we are saying is Give Peace a Chance. And that's what we're still saying. Well, and you've stuck with that over uh, the years. Yeah. It's become very close to identify with you. It has. Give Peace a Chance. Give Peace a Chance, yeah. And 
What are you doing to spread the word about Give Peace a Chance? Well, as you saw on the show, I do that. And in the interviews, I say peace and love. And if I meet someone, I say peace and love. I just sort of, it's part of me now. And that's what we do. But then on the, in 2008, I was being interviewed. And this guy said, well, and it was coming up to my birthday. What would you like from, you know, the people for your birthday? And I thought, you know what would be great at noon on the 7th of July, my birthday, if everyone went peace and love? It just came at that moment. And so we, we were in Chicago on my birthday, and we were on the pavement outside with like 100 people, and the hard rock was great. They made little cakes we could give the people. And we all, three, two, one. Peace and love. And that's what started it. It's got bigger and bigger. And the Hard Rock's been really supportive. And we've, we've done it in Germany. We did it in New York, of course. We've done like four in LA. So, but besides that, now we know that it's not only where I am that people are doing this. There's gatherings of people in Japan, in New Zealand, in Russia, in um, Denmark, you know, in Holland, and even from last year, there's two groups in England <laughs> uh, that stand there in that moment do this. So, it, you know, I'm, it's getting bigger. How great is that? What song? You've been associated with so many songs. You've written songs. You've had your solo career. You had a career with the Beatles. I don't want to be morbid in any way here, but if we're going to hold a memorial service for you, Oh. Time, time comes for everybody. Yeah. What one song would you prefer to be played above all others? Oh, I don't know. You know, there's hundreds. I, it's your choice. What do you think I'd like? <laughs> well, I think you might like Give Peace a Chance. Well, yes. We're, yeah, we'd like that. And but, uh, you know, I'm afraid to say to you, I love a yellow submarine, but well, that might not be appropriate. Well, it's also day in a life, <laughs> you know, so you, you could go mad with uh, those titles. You've been so generous with your time, and I appreciate it. What question have I not asked you that You've I should have asked me asked? too many, I'll tell you that, <laughs> and I'm such a blabbergob. There are never too many. There are never too many. Well, I wish you good luck and Godspeed. Hey, it's been Sir really Ringo. easy. Thank you. Godspeed to you, my friend. I'm, get up and give me a hug. I'll be happy to. <laughs> Thank you, Wrinkle. Thank All you. right, come on. Give him a peace and love. Yeah, peace and love. Let me hear you. Peace and love. Yeah! Hey! <laughs> and that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media, where we share behind-the-scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.